So uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, and this is what it says. It says, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops, so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. So, um, yeah, forgive me if I uh, stumble over the old uh, Mephibosheth quite a few times. I don't know why the Holy Spirit inspired um, Samuel to write his name down about 800 times in this particular <laughs> chapter. But anyway, um, the kind king. So we're thinking a, a bit about um, what David's like and how he points us forward, obviously, to, to Jesus as well. But as you get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, you're, you're at this place where um, in the previous chapter, um, you see that David's basically landed on his feet. He's got everything going for him. Um, all the nations around him are subject to him. They all bring him loads and loads of, of money. And, and David basically is having a really, really, really good time. His name means, as we know, beloved of, of God. And uh, you see he's the superpower and Israel's the superpower of, of the area. He's royally minted. Um, he has absolutely everything. So, so David has absolutely everything, and, and and I think the author is obviously writing want us to get that in our in our minds as you read two Samuel eight. David has everything, so that when we come to chapter nine, you see a massive contrast going on with Mephibosheth, who has has nothing. Um, he's he's completely completely broken and and, and empty really. And uh, I guess you could kind of talk through, or you could tell the story of Mephibosheth, um, and he might say something like this. He might say something like this. Aged four, I was having a really, really good life. I loved hanging out with my father, Jonathan. We used to go on loads of adventures. We had lots of great fun. And my grandfather was, was king of, of Israel. His name was King Saul. And it was a brilliant life. We basically, I could have fruit shoots on, on tap. Um, there were crudités with, with hummus. I didn't know what crudités were until recently. Um, what, what generation do you speak to? Yeah, this is... This is <laughs> what, what's, what's that cr- word you? Cr- crudites. 
Yeah, I didn't know they were. Some uh, some lady who's quite refined so told us. Yeah, there you go, those things. Any of those? Your top beans, right? Yeah, it looks like your top beans. Yeah, so you had crudités, hummus, um, crayfish and dill volivons, um, soufflés, <laughs> basically anything he wanted, any toy he wanted was, was his. So, so Mephibosheth would say, oh, I had a, such a, a brilliant life. But then then age five, obviously the, the page uh, turned and everything... Um, everything went really bad. And so um, Mephibosheth would say and tell then about what happened age five. That So there's a situation, if you remember back to 2 Samuel chapter 4, where um, Mephibosheth hears and, and his au pair hears, if you like, the story um, of what's happened um, or, the, or certainly the news comes to, to his carer of what's happened to his dad, um, Jonathan, who's been killed in battle. And then his grandfather, Saul, has, has committed suicide. And so it would have been absolutely devastating for him. And then on top of that, to kind of add to all the, the trauma and all the stuff that was going on, the au pair thinking that we need to get out quickly in case we get killed as well, um, picks Mephibosheth up and accidentally drops him and he ends up lame. And so Mephibosheth would say that I went from this place of having everything myself, having a brilliant life, to absolutely having nothing, that my cup was empty. Uh, and we're told here in, in 2 Samuel 9 that he then ends up um, living, and this is probably about 15 years or so later, so this is probably, he's at, aged about 20 when this happens, um, but he's living away in this place called Lodabar, which is really interesting because it's, it's in the middle of nowhere, it's a kind of deserty kind of area, and Lodabar means nothing. And so you've got David who's got everything, and Mephibosheth who's got absolutely nothing. His, his dad's gone, his grandfather's gone, the kingdom that he was part of is gone. Um, he's, he's at rock um, bottom. And then as you pick up the story and ask Mephibosheth, well, what happened on this particular day? Mephibosheth would say, I heard the, you know, the bell go on my, on, on my house. And obviously being lame, I couldn't get to the door. But the door was opened by, by Makir, son of Amiel. And I heard at the door there were, two, there were lots of soldiers there. And these soldiers were asking for me. And, and, and my heart kind of absolutely dropped. My heart sank at this particular point because I was thinking back to all the times where my grandfather had mistreated um, King David because I knew these soldiers are from, from, from King David. And, and he would remember back to when, when his, his grandfather used to try and use um, David as his own personal dartboard and try to spear him um, twice and how, how Saul had also t- stolen uh, David's wife and given, him, given her away to another man and how he then hunted down um, David and, and, and so all these things no doubt would have been racing through Mephibosheth's mind as that door um, knock or the doorbell came and he would have been fearing for his life you see in verse um, 7 and we'll come on to this a bit later but he, David says don't be afraid the reason he would have been afraid is because he knew that in, in the ancient Near East that if a, a new house came to power you would liquidise, you'd wipe out the, the, the previous house. So, so he knows that this is, this is game over. Well, he thinks he knows. Anyway, this is game over. This is, this is the end. And so Mephibosheth is there and he's, and he's just full of shame and he's full of just realising that his life is nothing. He is no one. Um, he lives in a place called nothing. Everything has gone wrong. And, and, and I, thought, I thought it was quite an interesting kind of, on one level, parallel to... to where we find ourselves out in the 21st century in, in the UK with a, a lot of people that we talk to um, are at that kind of same place of, of the feeling of the, 
of the shame of not being the person they thought they were, not being at the place they hoped to be. And and it's and it's you know they've been told, and throughout our culture we're told constantly you can you can have it all, you can have everything. Um, this is a you know a classic film from 20 years ago or so, um, where the character said, "Our generation has had no great depression, no great war. Depression is our lives. We were raised on television to believe that we'd all be millionaires, um, like Del Boy, movie gods, rock stars, but we won't, and we're starting to figure that out." And and it's it's really I mean all that was quite a while ago that was that that, that film came out. It was actually um, you know really insightful about where I think a lot of people were starting to realise they're told you can have it all, you can go and do whatever you want, and then they start hitting their thirties and they start realising they they can't have it all and they haven't got much of a future and actually their life is in a bit of a bit of a two and eight. Um, Glyn Harrison he made a point in the big ego trip failure to hit the big time maybe leaving people to hit out, not at others, but themselves. So I, I think as we chat with people, and as I sort of certainly chat with people, I find that a lot of people seem to be very weighed down, um, and they can't necessarily put their finger on it, but it's because they're seeing themselves as nothing, living nowhere, their lives amounting to, to not very much at all. So what, what happens in, the, in this story for Mephibosheth, who's at that same kind of place um, is, is really interesting because what he gets is what people in our world need um, and you see that in verse verse one I'll just read that to you it says there David asked is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for for Jonathan's sake and what what he needs Mephibosheth and what we all need is is the shower of of kindness when our lives stink and we know that they're we're full of shame what do we need we need this shower of kindness. When he talks there about the kindness, is that Hebrew word hesed, that meaning faithful um, love. And, and it's really interesting that David here um, remembers his his kind of his covenant, if you like, with with Jonathan. So back in one Samuel twenty, um, you get this this promise that David makes to Jonathan to look after his his descendants, and they they strike up this this covenant back there. And David could have easily uh, just you know, chosen to forget that, or he could have genuinely forgot it because it happened 15 years ago um, or so. So it was a lot, quite a while ago. Or he could have reasoned it away and said, look, I don't need to remember that because you know, Saul's family, Saul's house has tried to kill, kill me on lots of occasions. So why now should I try and um, you know, give this guy some power back and give this guy um, a life back when his house has treated me like that? But that's not the way David treats um, Jonathan's descendants, not the way he treats Mephibosheth. And, and the word, as I say, um, kindness there is, is, is all on about um, a covenant. Now, we've got a friend, um, I won't say the name because I'm on air. Uh, we've got a friend, he, um, he's, he's really fun, quite a funny guy. He's, um, he's an autistic guy and he, he, uh, there's a situation where he was at a men's conference once and uh, our friend really hates football. And the guy who was heading up the, the conference um, suddenly started trying to introduce these thousands of men there to, uh, to having a good day by talking about football. And as our friend hates it and doesn't really know when it's culturally appropriate to say stuff, he just shouted out at the top of his very high-pitched lungs, boring! And, and like, every, it was just complete silence as he, as he shouted out boring. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the same kind of, I get that kind of um, idea coming through my head every time I hear the word covenant, because it, sa- it just sounds really dry and dusty and contractual and... And quite boring as well, but that, that's not 
really at all what the idea is in the Bible. Because the idea in the Bible is is covenant is all about having faithful love. It's all about um, overflowing out of that love into um, showering people in in kindness. And that's what really is getting been got at in verse verse one. Um, David is thinking back to his covenant, but he's not thinking boring. He's thinking the covenant is actually all about showering kindness on that person that you are in covenant with. So, so what was the kindness? Well, you see in verses two to five, and I won't read them out again. That David goes to these ridiculous lengths to start with to try and find um, someone who's related to Jonathan. He wants to try and seek someone out to be faithful to what he, he said he would do. So he goes to the ridiculous lengths to start with. Um, but then we start to see what the kindness was when we come to, um, I'll just read from verses six to seven. It says, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. So, so what was the kindness? Well, he'd gone to ridiculous lengths to, to find him when he didn't need to on one level. Um, but on another level, obviously he did because he made a covenant. Um, it was firstly to make, um, make this guy, Mephibosheth, rich. So he's got this, he's got nothing. He lives in a place called nothing. All, the, all of the kind of power and the wealth and everything that he previously had um, has, has gone. And David takes him out of his poverty into this place of, of incredible riches. He says there, I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. And he's got all these servants that we see of later in the chapter as well that he's going to have. And it's just a, a brilliant picture of, of what obviously what Jesus has done for us when we you know, reflect on 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. And though, we, though um, he was rich, he became poor so that, us, so that we through his poverty um, might become rich. And it's a, it's a great kind of pointer to, to exactly what Jesus has done here. Um, for for us and for the world that we live in that is full of shame and full of feeling like they're nothing and and nobodies that i will make you rich so that's the first part of the shower um the other the second part of the shower where when life stinks is is this um i will adopt you into my family and you get four times this mention that david says um you will eat at my table and and the reason you can't we kind of say well the adoption into the family is because who would eat at the table well it would it would be the king's family and the point of, of that is made also in verse 11 so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons and so you've got this guy who's lost his family and lost everything and and now he is is restored and given a new family and given a, a new name and a new um, identity and, and it's just an incredible act of, of, of love and kindness and from David. As we talk with people, um, lots of people got different ideas what, what, about what God is like. Um, as, we, as we chat with people, they've all got different understandings. Um, quite often people think he's just a God who's like trying to show off his power and just is this God who's a bit of a... If you listen back to the New Atheists, they always used to talk about him being like this dictator or you know, head of a totalitarian regime or whatever. Um, but when we see what God is really like with all the power that he does have, and as David points us forward to Jesus, we, we see that what does he use his power for? Well, he use it, uses it to come and, and seek us out, to seek out the people who, who are nothing and living nowhere. 
Um, that's that's what he does with his power. That's the kind of God that we have, as we know. And, and we, we have a God who remembers his covenant um, back in, well, for the foundation of the world, for one, but also back in Genesis 3, um, we're, we're told there that, that God promises that he will send someone into the world to crush uh, the serpent. That's what he promised. And out of an overflow of his loving kindness, he, he does that by by giving us um, his, his one and only son. And so you just get this beautiful picture of what David has done, pointing us forward to what, what God has done for us in, in Jesus. It's also worth, I think, thinking that when, when David here is, is doing this covenant thing, um, that we're also in covenant with one another. So we're, we're, the, we're those who've been brought to the king's table, all of us um, as sons and daughters of the king, our family now. And so I think one of the things that we can kind of pick up from this as well is, is the need for us to, to be living, obviously, authentic Christian lives. I've been, I've been reading quite a few books recently on, on apologetic stuff, and uh, there's been some interesting ones, um, particularly there's one by a guy called Kevin Van Hooser. It sounds a bit odd, but he's, uh, he's quite, quite an insightful kind of guy. But he, he talks about this style of apologetics, which um, <laughs> is all like ridiculously weird and technical, but what he means by it, basically, is that what we need to be doing as we try and defend the faith is actually embody the faith as well, as it's live out um, the Christian faith. And also, so when we speak... Um, we're, we're speaking in a in a way that is like Jesus, and it isn't just here's a bunch of facts you need to propositions you need to accept. But actually, we that we live out the Christian faith and embody it in the way that we that we do it. That we a bit like Spurgeon in the soul, in the soul winner, just kind of we preach our, our our preach our guts out. We we fire out all the cannonballs. We fire out everything um, when we preach, rather than having just a here's some technical things and it being really mundane. And and I think. I think it's important that when we think about what we're to do um, in terms of as we as Christians, we're evangelists who proclaim, but we're also those who are to to actually be demonstrating the the, the reality of the gospel as well. And one of the ways we can do that is by realising that we're to shower each other in in kindness, and obviously not just us as evangelists, but those in our churches um, as as well, wherever we may go. And we're not to do it through through gritted teeth, but we're we're to rather kind of go to bed. With the, uh, with the 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 theme tune of uh, of Scylla Black singing surprise surprise the unexpected hits you between the eyes um, because it's the it's the idea that David here does this amazingly surprising thing the covenant isn't a boring thing it's a it's a thing out, he does out of out of joy and out of love that he wants to surprise um, Mephibosheth and I think that's something that is is really key for us as well to to go through our life thinking who tomorrow can I surprise with with love and and kindness. Uh, whatever it may be, whether it's buying someone a coffee or cleaning someone's house or whatever, but just to try and think to ourselves, who can we shower um, in in love? And and, it, and as Jesus says, it's by your love that that people will know that you are are my disciples. So so the shower of kindness is what God does for us, and then because He's done it for us, that overflows out of us um, to to others. And it's something that as God has entered into this covenant with the world as well that we obviously are there to shower our non-Christian contacts and friends and the people in our families uh, with that kind of love and kindness as well. And so often that is, again, a thing that provokes even more opportunities for us to talk um, about Jesus. So um, let's, let's move on to the, the, last, the last kind of bit and people can say, say whatever they want. Uh, yeah, I know it's ugly, isn't it? It's a terrible... Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure it's really... It's more like a rat, I think so. 
So there's, so there's the pug. Um, so yeah, so what we're, I just wanted to kind of pick up on one more thing really at, at the end here, because actually two more things, but if you look at verse eight, uh, in response to this shower of kindness, you see what Mephibosheth does. It says, he bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And, and that kind of response is, is, is one, coming back to what people will so often think about the shame of, of their lives. Um, I think underneath the bravado and underneath the exterior, there's a lot of people thinking, I'm a dead dog, I'm, I'm nothing, I'm nobody. Um, and what our culture says you should, should do is you should boost these people. You should um, tell them, no, you're not a mutt or a mongrel, you're actually a pedigree. Uh, you're, you're amazing, you're incredible. And, and just tell them this stuff and, and that, will, that will boost them. But that makes no sense um, for quite a few reasons. Um, here's a few of them. Mephibosheth actually realises the reality. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't get it wrong when he says, I'm a dead dog. He's, he's actually being accurate. He, he's saying, I've got nothing to bring to your table. I've got nothing I, I can bring to you to make your life any better um, to David as, as king. And, and it's something which I think people need to realise as well in our lives. We can't bring anything to Jesus and say, look, I'm so wonderful and amazing. Please have me. Um, we haven't got anything to bring to the table. And so he, he gets that, that, that right when he says he's a dead dog. But secondly, just telling ourselves that we're, or telling people just, you're incredible, you're amazing, um, is that people don't believe when they start telling themselves that anyway, they don't believe their own, own propaganda. So this doesn't work. Hey, hey Michael. And then, and then thirdly, I think what people need, obviously, then is to hear that verdict from outside themselves. They need to hear the verdict of the king um, that you are welcome at, at the king's table. So there's that kind of kind of falling off the side of the horse the wrong way um, on, on one side, but you, people can also fall off the horse the other side as well. So when Mephibosheth says, um, why should you notice a dead dog like me? I think most of us are probably more tend to trend towards... Um, doing rehearsing our dead dog theology that is we just go I'm a dead dog I'm a dead dog I'm just a dead dog and, and just look at ourselves and just beat ourselves up constantly and and what we need to hear and, and believe is what what David says to Mephibosheth which is yeah you are but come and sit at the table come and be one of my sons come and come and feast um, with with me and and that's and that's what happens there and we kind of got to tell ourselves if we're more prone that that side of things to you know pipe down and and to listen to what um, actually the King of Kings says, which is you are you are a dead dog, but you're invited um, to come from under the table. You're going for the scraps to be seated um, at, at the table. So um, this this guy um, Tom Holland uh, is is quite an interesting chap. Um, he's a historian who yeah. It's interesting where he's at anyway with, with, with Christianity. But he's written some really interesting stuff on, on how the Western mind has been really basically transformed um, historically by Christianity. And in, in, a, in a recent interview, he, he was talking about how as Christians, Christians should be proclaiming the cross and keeping that central because that's what has transformed the whole of the past. That's why we've got you know, human rights. That's why we've got all the... The, the good things that we we love in our in our culture uh, right now it's all rooted in in Jesus and what he did on the cross and and he he made this point he said i see no point in bishops or preachers or christian evangelists just recycling the kind of stuff that you can get from any kind of soft left liberal because everyone is giving that 
and we've just seen what every soft left liberal will say in terms of uh, in terms of boosting ourselves and trying to give ourselves that big kind of ego um, trip that we're talking about. And the, the danger is obviously we can just mimic and say the same things that our culture is saying. But I think he makes a great point when he says, look, no, you've got you've got something way more powerful. You've got something unique um, to be telling people. And and the unique thing is. Uh, is that though people are dead dogs and they're full of shame and they're nowhere and nobodies, actually the King of Kings wants to lift them out from under the table again, to seat them at the table and, and bring them into his family. And so we've got an incredible message to give. I was listening to another guy, um, and Michael read, read his book uh, recently, uh, Doug, Douglas Murray, and uh, he's very, again, another interesting chap. And he, he was just saying in, in an interview um, about how um, what what people need um, in in this world is, or the two reasons people are listening to him is he's critiquing a lot of the culture and where things have gone wrong. But the two things that people come to listen to him for um, are, are really because they want to meet other like-minded people who are seeing the problems out there. But also he they're they're wanting to seek after truth. They they actually want um, to know what is true and and live out the truth. And yeah, you could argue whether that is actually the case according to Romans 1. But it's interesting that this is what people are saying. They, they want to know what is true. And so I think as Christians and as evangelists, we've got all the more reason to go that people are so desperate to hear the truth um, that we've got every good reason to go and power out the gospel um, because it is good news and, and it is reality and it is unique and it is earth-shatteringly um, good, unlike everything else people are getting, getting fed. So as we as we kind of wrap up, um, the final thought was about Mephibosheth. His his name um, again points us forward, or he does, and David does, points us to Jesus, because Mephibosheth actually means dispeller of of shame. And so it, it's really interesting that you've got Mephibosheth. He thinks of himself as a dead dog, um, and he he points us forward to, obviously to Jesus, who is the true dispeller of shame. If you, we won't have to go there now because I've got the quote on the screen. But in Psalm 22, when you've got this, obviously the psalm about the cross and about the resurrection, um, in that psalm, uh, we're told there that David, as he predicts what, ha- what happened to Jesus, is that Jesus kind of goes even lower than a dead dog. He actually becomes the, the, the dog food. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. Mephibosheth was lame in his feet, but Jesus gets nailed not just in his feet, but in his in his hands as well. That Jesus goes even lower than the lowest that any of us have ever gone, or the lowest place that anyone finds finds himself in. Uh, and why does he do it? Well, you read there in Psalm 22, verse 26. It says that because when he when he resurrects, it says the humble will eat and and be satisfied. And and it's a, again a picture of how the king will will become the dead dog and go lower than the dead dog. Um, to lift us up so that we can have a place um, at, at the table. And it's that king who we, who we love and it's that king who, who we delight to, to share with the world. And it's that king who removes um, ultimately and dispels all the shame that is caused through our, for our sin and, and our issues. So, um, yeah, I, I'm just, just going to end, end there, really. Um,